from WBEC Chicago, Public Radio International. It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. And I hold in my hands a children's book called Nobody's Family is Going to Change, published in the 1970s by the same writer who did Harriet the Spy, Louise Fitzhugh. It is, I have to say, an oddly menacing title, Nobody's Family is Going to Change. Various contributors to our show have joked that it's part of a series for kids with The Little Princess Who Got Sick and Never Woke Up, Daddy Drinks Because You Cry, God Made the Pretty Girls Pretty Because He Loved Them More, and Sharing is for Sissies. But in fact, it's a serious and really good and rather brave little book, Nobody's Family is Going to Change. There's a family, as you might expect, Sheridans. They mean disapproving dad, a mom who tries to smooth things over, a son who wants to dance in a show but is told he can't by his father, a daughter, Emma, who's accused of daydreaming too much, who wishes that her family could be different. Over the course of the book, Emma tries to get her dad to change, to listen to them, to be kind. She joins something called the Children's Army, which agitates for the notion that it is a child's right to change his or her family. And then finally, towards the end of the book, sitting at dinner, as her father and brother rehash the same fight that they always have, Emma realizes that her parents will never change. Her dad will always be harsh, will never treat her or her brother like he cares about them, and that she can't change him and shouldn't try. And the best she can do is change herself. So she goes and tells her friends, who have trouble understanding it. There's a scene... What about my father, asked Golden. Your father said Saunders is a lost cause. He thinks boys are great, and he's never going to think you're anything because you're a girl. Well, says Golden, I can't change that. No, but you can stop wanting him to change, said Saunders. Emma felt like the top of her head would fly off. Saunders got it, the whole thing. That's what I mean, said Emma loudly. That's just what I'm talking about. We have to stop waiting around for them to love us. Because it's the 70s, one of the kids suggested they form a consciousness-raising group. The fact is, even those of us who are adults, who know better, who accept our parents and siblings as we hope that they accept us, even we hope, somehow, that maybe they'll change a little, this way or that. It's hard not to hope. And the question's on the table. Is nobody's family going to change? Today, three stories that explore whether that might be true. Act one. So a Jew, a Christian, and a recording crew walk into this bar. In that act, a woman travels to Alaska, thinking that maybe her brother might change a little, as he hopes that she'll change a little, too. Act two. Matching outfits not included. The story of two sisters, now in their 70s, who have preserved the same relationship they had as girls, for better or worse. Act three. The artist formerly known as Dr. Sarkin. What happens when you want your dad to change? And he wants to change, but there is literally nothing that can be done to change him. Stay with us. Act 1. Julia Pimsler's brother, Mark, went through a dramatic change years ago now. And I think it's not exaggerating to say that she wanted him to change back, at least a little back to the way he was when they were young. And so she set on a little mission to see him and talk and get his side of things and experiment to see if anybody would change. Mark and I were very close when we were small. Um, 
we traveled a lot, so we really only had each other for many months at a time. You know, we went, um, we went to Ghana, and we went to Switzerland, we went to Germany, sometimes for many months at a time when my dad was teaching. So my earliest memories are just of this little family unit, my dad, my mother, my brother, and me. Julie and I were, just, were always together. We were the main, you know, we were our, she and I were, you know, we had each other. We'd play and talk and stuff. And I don't think we, I don't even remember fighting at all until, um, till the year my dad died and we moved to New York. That year was when everything changed for all of us. Um, we just became very isolated into our separate worlds at that point. Uh, my brother and I no longer shared a room from that point on. Um, and I don't think we were much of a family unit ever again after that. Somehow the three of us couldn't make it a family unit again. Um, I would like to talk with Mark about my father, but it's too late now because he has decided that everything that came before he was born again doesn't really matter. I was at home and I was in one of my states where I was just totally depressed and confused. And um, so I opened the Bible and I don't remember what the scripture was. It was something like, um, why are you um, stressed out? Today is a day of joy. I read that and all of a sudden I just, I realized God loved me right there. And it just hit me like an atom bomb. I mean, it was so, I just felt it so powerfully. I was just like, God loves me. And it just went like inside, you know, and and it just kept going. I guess starting chronologically, um, my brother went to UC Berkeley and dropped out and became a born again Christian and moved to a small island in Alaska to join a separatist community. I mean, I was just like on fire physically. I was just, I mean, in a good way. It was just like this, just blinding light. The whole thing. There was no way I, I could dispute that something was happening. Something big was happening. And, uh, and, he and called just, home and, and said kind of like that he had moved to I, a I place called The Farm. Like, and like we asked where that was, and he said it was on a, like a small island near Juneau, and, and that he was living with 75 so people right. in a <laughs> self-sufficient like, farming community. And, uh, and, and they and consider like themselves born-again Christians. I, I went outside, and I was like, I just felt like a, I felt like a newborn baby. And I was like, looked up to the sky, and it was, it was just getting to be evening, and I could see the stars, and I was like, wow. It's like I was seeing everything for the first time. And, uh, and I At first, when he joined the farm, it almost made us closer, because he had been out of the house you know, for several years. I spent my last years of high school with him away, so we didn't talk then, and he was traveling a lot. And then uh, he was at Berkeley, and I didn't hear from him much. And then when he came home one year... He, it was when he had started to have these religious experiences, and he confided in me. He didn't tell my mother, because he knew she would be very freaked out, and he told me. And so I remember initially feeling really close to him again, and very special and happy that he had chose to confide in me. Um, and I kept his secret, and we talked about it, we had long talks about it, and I think he was very relieved that I didn't seem you know, terrified at what he was telling me. But then, over the next few years, as he got more and more involved with the farm, you know, it felt like he was part of their world and not part of our world. And his language changed, and he was talking about Jesus all the time, and terms that didn't make any sense to us. 
Um, and then about five years ago, he came to visit me in France, where I was living with my girlfriend, and I was very happy and in love, and and actually very excited to share that with him, and you know, show him this wonderful life I had now. And he was incredibly judgmental, you know, and said, "Well, the Bible does not abide by people of the same sex, you know, living with each other or loving each other." And he didn't actually want to stay with us. Um, we went and stayed somewhere else and left him the apartment because that's the only way it would work. And So I think I, I cut him out of my life at that point. I mean, I just try to forget that he was ever a part of my life. And um, so then he was gone again. I mean, very simply, I missed my brother. You know, I, at some point I realized I had a brother once and I no longer do. Um, I just started to feel like this is really sad and maybe it doesn't have to be like this. You know, now that he's born again Christian, there will always be a huge divide between us. But the question became, even with that divide, did I want to try to have some kind of relationship? And I guess the answer was yes, or at least yes, I want to try, even though it might not work. I decided to go visit Mark in Alaska. Logging camp below us. Look at that. Where's Mark's Island? This is it. Oh no, this is it. What happens is you fly for, you know, a good 20, 25 minutes and you don't see anything. You're just in sort of the hinterland of Alaska where nobody lives. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's a few little cabins down below. And you land on this airport that's basically just one landing strip. You know, it's about as long as your average suburban mall parking lot. And uh, then you're there. Hi. Have we met? Um, some time This other plane just pulled out two seconds ago, and everybody gets in. I'm like, hmm. oh. oh no, <laughs> she missed the flight. It was actually really easy this time. For many years, I lied about what Mark was doing in Alaska. I used to say that he was a scientist or that he was studying fish farming. I made up a whole bunch of weird things just because I didn't really understand why he was there myself, and I couldn't explain it to other people. Whenever I did say he was part of a born-again Christian community, people always said, oh, it's a cult, and, and I didn't know what to say. So I just didn't tell people for a long time. And, and many people didn't even know I had a brother. I, I had a lot of friends I'd had for many years who would say, oh, my God, do you have a brother? I had no idea. So I think what I'd come to try to find out in visiting Mark after all those years was how he'd gone from being, you know, my brother who I went to Hebrew school with and watched him prepare for his bar mitzvah and you know, how he had made this incredible transformation, you know, what is he doing there? And how can I try to understand it better? And would he still feel like my brother? There we go. Okay, Luke, 1830. When do you like to read the Bible? Like before you go to sleep or? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I usually do. Does it, Unfortunately, does it doesn't last too long, so you usually fall asleep like within 10 seconds. But Do you like to talk about the scripture and sort of try to figure out what they meant by stuff? I mean, is it also an intellectual activity for mm. you? Or? Oh, no. I don't, not really. Um, I was always I'm jealous of Mark because he, totally. he was very naturally talented. I mean, he was very creative and, you know, read a lot and he was very intellectually engaged from an early age, went to see old movies and... That's just not interesting to him anymore. Um, 
But what would heaven be like? Because I have no concept of that. And I tried to, I have tried to imagine that. I mean, because, you know, mm-hmm. when Dad died, I definitely tried to think about where is he. Mm-hmm. And that's probably the last time I thought about there maybe being a god. Yeah, right. Um, well, why don't we just, let's see. Well, let's see. I really don't know what to ask. Let's just see. Look, look, look about heaven, paradise. Well, I want to know what you think. Well, what I think is, because if I have anything to say, it's going to be based on what the Bible says anyway, because there's not really any other way to know except what's written in the Bible. Well, no, you, I mean, you think plenty of things that aren't exactly what's written in the Bible. I mean, well, where am I going to get some, well, yeah, no, but where am I going to get an idea of what heaven's like? I mean, I've never been there. I don't really know. Yeah, but you can imagine. I mean, I... Yeah, but, well, what, that's what I'm saying. What I'm saying is what I would have to say would hopefully be based on what the Bible has to say, and if, it's, if what I'm saying is just my imagination of it, then it's kind of irrelevant anyway. Does that make sense? You yeah, but it feels more relevant to me well, if you course. just look up something and read it to me out of a book than if you tell me how you feel about it. But how I feel about it is based on what's in the book, and I'm not sure exactly. I can't, like, I memorized the book, so I need to just, like, look it up and see what it says. But it does seem like heaven was one of those things where, I mean, what's it going to say? It's going to say there is a heaven and you all get to go there. But it's not going <laughs> to tell you what it looks like. It's not going to say. Well, it doesn't tell you what it looks well, like. Well, exactly. So why look it up? <laughs> Let's see if it says anything that might be relevant. <laughs> Can you like, can't look it up. We're talking. <laughs> we're talking about heaven. If we read scriptures about heaven, we might give us more things to talk about. Thank I know, you. but I didn't. I but asking you what you think of heaven was not connected to looking at scripture. I mean, those are two different things. Well, for me, it's connected to looking up scripture. <laughs> Fine, look it up. <laughs> no, no, I don't want to. <laughs> oh okay, well, how would you feel though if you asked me something and I said I don't know, I have to go look it up? That wouldn't bother me in the least. <laughs> in the feminist guidebook. The yeah. lesbian love handbook of life. <laughs> no, but really, I mean, it's like you've read it at some point, so yes, something made an impression on you, yes, and then right. you made a decision about which part you think is what you believe. I mean, some people believe in rapture. You don't believe in rapture. No. So um, all I'm saying is no matter what it says in here, mm-hmm. you must have your own opinion. Yes, I do. And that's what I'm interested in. But my, I'm going to say exactly the same thing I just said five minutes ago. My opinion is based on this, and so that's why I want to look it up, because it'll refresh my memory about and give me some more ideas instead of just kind of like saying something off the top of my head about what little, vaguely little bit I remember about. Right. Yeah, I guess I just think it's a personal thing. It is a personal thing, but that's fine. I mean, that doesn't make any... I don't think but is there, do you have any personal zone left that's not the Bible? I think you're getting off track. It's a question. No, I really do. I really do. I'm not sure why. Or well, no, I, yeah, I guess I just feel like... Our, I mean, you're losing your objective... Um, I'm not objective. Your, I know, well, you're not. Well, you're losing your, like, um... Um... What, what's, what's what your job is called? The person... Documenting? Who, yes, totally. You really are. You're not being, um... You're not working with me. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Okay, let's look it up. Okay. I really thought there's really nothing wrong with looking it up. No, there's nothing wrong with looking it up. Okay. Okay. No, there's totally nothing wrong with it. I'm going to look it up. Okay. Heaven. We are now <clears> looking up <throat> heaven. Exactly. In the Bible. Just to see what else is in there. Not because I can't think for myself, but because you know what else is in I think the most surprising thing to me was how much even with his new views and how different he was, how the same he was also. I mean, we went running together around the farm and uh, we picked blueberries and then I made blueberry pancakes for everybody on the farm. He played guitar and sang, I got to listen to him. I mean, in a way, sometimes I felt like he had drawn this 
shade down, like over a window, you know, but the window was still there, and the shade was Christianity. But it was still him underneath. I mean, he was still sarcastic, and he had a sense of humor. I mean, he was very caustic and self-deprecating, and I mean, in a way, really stood out on the farm because he was the only one like that. Um, I think that's the main thing that I found, is that we could still, you know, tease each other and, and be close. I took a mean kick in the stomach for you. Did you really? Well, don't you remember that, the bully who was twisting your nose? No, like I don't this? remember that. Because mm-hmm. all the kids were so mean at the French school, and mm-hmm. you defended me. Yeah, that's true. You were definitely in a place where we needed to stick together. But yeah, I, remember, I, remember I remember beating up Jean for you. I remember that, too. <laughs> no, I do. I remember. She was... Oops. Yeah, well, she was about as big as me, too. <laughs> but I did. I whooped her. I think for so many years, my mother, and maybe to a degree even I, felt responsible in a way for him having gone off to the farm, and maybe that's why we didn't talk about it with other people and why I lied about it, is that in some way we felt it reflected badly in us that it was a family, or somehow we had done something wrong, that he should want to trade in our family for this new spiritual family. But I think the irony is that only in researching what happened to him and really finally confronting the fact that he's there and trying to understand it, I think we've now realized that there's a lot that we didn't have anything to do with that has to do with Mark and his life and his demons that he's fighting. I mean, it was only in researching what had brought him to the farm that I found out things about him that I had no idea of, um, especially about the time that he was in college in Berkeley. This is something I have kind of very rarely talk about because, you know, who wants to dredge up this kind of stuff? But really, over about six months, I... Uh, let me get the time period right. Um, it's more like a year. That whole year, I just went, like, totally downhill. I mean, I remember taking a, a class in biology, you know, your basic bio 101, and... And I just couldn't hack it. And I don't know. I was. I don't know what happened exactly. I mean, I can tell you what happened. I don't know why, or I can't explain it. I'll tell you what happened. Is I just. I took the class. I got the book. You know, it's like this, and um, and I opened the book, and I'm and I just could not, like I couldn't do it. And that had never happened to me before, like that I could set that I would set myself to something and not be able to do it. It was like something up here was going wrong, like some wires were getting crossed or something. It was very scary. Actually, very scary. I remember now. And um, I'd really lost my mind. I mean, I can say it straight out. I had lost it completely. And um, the person I probably most talked to the most during all this time about what was going on was Donna Austin. Oh, he would call and would spend two or three hours on the phone. That was the year that everything really fell apart for him emotionally. And mentally, too, I think. Donna Austin is sort of my brother's surrogate mother on the farm. She's the first person he had contact with there and who is one of the people who convinced him to move there and to stay. He had, we had given him a Bible, and he was reading his Bible. And, and um, it was soon after that that he had this very unusual experience in the way that the Holy Ghost filled him and gave him the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And He had decided he had gotten involved with a Church of Christ group in there, and they were telling him that he wasn't saved and um, that because of this and that and his doctrines and which he didn't even know about anyway you know that and because of his experiences he just really wasn't saved and um, so he was in conflict mm-hmm. with those that were Christians that were guiding him 
and um, and then he also just had thoughts that he was a complete failure and he couldn't make it with God and so he said uh, God you've got to meet me or I'm going to you know I'm just not going to go on I'm just I don't know what I'm going to do with myself so one night he went over to a park of some kind there's like um, some hills right right around Berkeley I mean it's a walking distance so I just kind of walked up to the top of this hill and uh, it was evening, it was starting to get dark, and I just knew that I was going to be there until I had my answer, you know. And it was kind of a... <clears throat> I knew I had to have the answer. He had been on his knees, I think, most of the night, in the dark, the top of this, some kind of a hill, and he, he... I don't know what his thinking was, but he took some rocks and hit himself on the head, thinking, I'm either going to knock some sense into myself or kill myself, one or the other hit himself with rocks. Um. Basically, like, I threw myself off the edge of this cliff. Not a, not a big cliff, but I was to the point where um, I was either going to, you know, die or find, or find God trying. I mean, it was, it was a real confused state of mind, but essentially, I, um, I did. I kind of th threw myself off the edge and... Um, kind of wound up with the bottom of this precipice, minor, slight, I mean, slight precipice. I was a little bit, a little the worse for wear, but I wasn't in too bad shape. And I, uh, and I just kept praying. I said, God, you've got to, you know, I don't know the answer, you've got to show me. And, um, and I stayed there, you know, pretty much till, I don't know, it was like three in the morning, four in the morning. And, um, at some, at one point, I was just, I was just on my knees and I was just waiting and, um, I was just waiting, not expecting anything in particular, but all of a sudden, um, something kind of inside me just started welling up, and it was kind of like, um, kind of like a joyful feeling. I mean, but really joyful. Like, I was like, wow, I was something happened, something was like kind of, I don't know, just warming, a warm, kind of warm feeling. And I started speaking in tongues, just like that. It just kind of like came out. I was like, Whoa! This must be speaking in tongues, and I and then and and I just once again felt the presence of God and just got. I was just so happy. I was just. I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit, and, um, in a in a in a way that was um like as the way we're sitting here, like you're here, and I and I knew what he was saying. He was saying, "Don't worry, everything's gonna be all right." shocked to hear how depressed and desperate he was in Berkeley. I had never known that he was that bad off. Um, and I try not to spend too much time thinking about how it all could have turned out differently, but I think after hearing about how in distress he was at Berkeley, I realized that the farm saved his life in some ways. And I think some of the resentment I felt about him being there got replaced with the kind of gratitude that people took him in and took care of him at a time when he didn't or couldn't or wouldn't turn to us. So I think that changed my attitude towards the farm. Sometimes it seems like you worked out your issues through religion and I worked out my issues through therapy. Right. I guess one thing that I was thinking about that we talked about yesterday is I guess I felt it was important to me that you still have respect for um, 
my system of belief in mm-hmm. that, you know, if I were to seek psychological counsel or have problems that I thought were due to psychological factors, whatever mm-hmm. they may be, that I wasn't sure how you would see that. Like if you see all work as the work of, you know, evil spirits trying to pull you down or if you think that people really can have psychological problems. Well, <clears throat> there's a natural realm of just the things that God's created. <clears throat> and within that natural realm, there's just, there are laws and there are... Um, and so things are going to work for people, you know, and the nat- in working on, you know, dealing with your emotions and so on. But the, th- but the spiritual realm is, it's really above all that. Is but that- if I were really depressed, would mm-hmm. you be thinking it was spirits or would you, what would you think? You're really stuck on the spirit thing. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, I don't get it. Because I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it and I don't believe in them. And I'm yeah, just right. wondering, you know, if you're, okay, you know what else I'm thinking of? I'm thinking of the fact that I did feel like in high school, mm-hmm. like you always seemed really, you always felt very superior mm-hmm. and were always kind of like looking down at what I was doing. And the irony of this whole conversation is that part of me is having this big flashback, flashback. to high school, <laughs> you know, that you're like, well, you can do whatever you want down there in the, the natural realm. realm. Yeah. yeah, because we're yeah. up here in the spiritual realm. Yeah, right. Uh, well, that's always my hesitation about talking about any of this because I just don't know how to relate it to you without it being some without it being something that you're going to say this is weird or this is not I can't deal with this or I can't it's understand not this, this weird, or, it's the I know no, better it's the it's yeah the, okay well unfortunately like I was it can come off extremely arrogant to say well this is the way the truth and the life and that's what Jesus said this I am the way the truth and the life and you can't water it down and you can't make it acceptable mm-hmm. you know and it divides it divides people but you see that I'm struggling to accept that your way is a valid way that's just different from my way. Um, and I want to yeah. feel like you also feel that my way is a valid right. way, it's just different from your way. Yeah. I'm, I know you don't think that. Well, there just isn't room for that. We can't really. Communicate. Not really. You know... In our day-to-day relationship, sometimes we can actually forget that he's born again and I'm a secular Jew. But then we stumble on these landmines that really explode into conflict between us. I really can't. I would never be able to say, yes, I'm happy that you're like having this lesbian lifestyle. I could never say that, but I could, but I could, but I never... It, but that still doesn't change that you are my sister and I care about you just as much as I always have and I still consider my sister. I mean, those two things are both true. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a brick wall because there's no way, there's no, there's no middle ground. There just isn't. Part of me didn't even buy that he felt that way because he had had plenty of friends who were gay and bisexual and I'm not sure if he experimented or not in that vein, but you know, he certainly was not someone who was homophobic or concerned about people's sexual orientation. So the idea that he adopted this set of values that included homophobia when he wasn't homophobic himself was just very irritating. I mean, it did feel like he was sort of spouting something that had been fed to him. Well, the Bible says God's put his laws in our hearts. And maybe that's why, because that what you're doing is against the law of God. I mean, as it's written in the Bible, flat out, and it's in my heart. And so I, it goes against what's in my heart, you know. Is that... And that's maybe that's why that's why maybe it kind of gets me. It kind of makes you know it's something I can feel. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, I think it was, you know... When I accepted, when I came to this thing of accepting um, Christianity, uh, it wasn't that I read the Bible and decided, okay, I agree that, uh, you know, men and, a man is made a man and a woman is made a woman and they're made that way by God and anything else is a perversion. It's not like I read that and I read some of the other doctrines and said, this is what I want, I agree with this, this is right. I mean, I accepted Jesus and what comes along with that is what's written in his word. I don't know what would happen if I was with a woman. Well, then, I would want to come visit you. I mean, I can't say it's right, it's fine, no big deal, because it is a big deal. These are the things that no longer freak me out when I think about Mark. That he talks in tongues that he has to check with God before he makes any move at all, that he believes that there's a destiny and that God has his all planned out and he just has to live according to what it is. You would naturally think I'd be praying for their salvation and be praying for God to touch them the way he touched me and, you know, want them to be Christian. And I, I've had, I've thought, well, wouldn't it be neat if, you know, a few years ago I was thinking, wouldn't it be neat if Julie was Christian, lived on the farm and had my sister here and my family here and my mom, and, my mom, and wouldn't that be wonderful if we all agreed and they were on my side, you know. And, um, and then at other times I've thought, what really, what, what really do I have to offer? Julie's a wonderful person and has wonderful friends and has a, has a, a life that she's, you know, um, I believe fulfilled with and does good things for people. And, uh, you know, what, what does, what's the point of praying for them? You know, when I, you know, what does God have to offer them? Or not what does God have to offer them, but I don't see the need there. I don't see that they'd be any happier if they became Christian. And, you know, that's actually ironic that all these years he's taken us on our own terms and hasn't preached, and we really didn't take him on his terms until very recently. And I think one of the hardest things I had to do was accept that Mark would never be the brother I grew up with. He would never be the same as he was before. And I had to sort of relearn to love him in a way. You know, he was a whole different person now. Julia Pimsler and her brother Mark Pimsler. The audio recordings in her story are from a film documentary that she made about her visit to see Mark in Alaska called Brother Born Again. It's available on the internet at artsengine.net. In the eight years since we first put this story on the air, Mark has left Alaska to go to medical school in Texas. He's now in his first year of residency. He is still a Christian. He is still affiliated with the farm. In the eight years since Julia made her film, she's gotten married to a man, a rabbi in fact, they have two kids. She says 
Matching light blue easy chairs with matching teddy bears sitting on them. And what else can happen if your relationship with your brothers and sisters does stay the same as it was when you were kids? That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. American Life from Ira Glass. Each week in our program, of course, we choose some theme, bring you a variety of different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's program, Nobody's Family is Going to Change. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, Matching Outfits Not Included. In this outfit, in this act, we consider the question, what if your relationships with your loved ones, your brothers and sisters, never changes? Hillary Frank has this story of two sisters, grown women, who go by the nicknames that they were given as little girls, Dusty and Honey. Back when Dusty and Honey were in their early 20s, not long after World War II, they were shopping in a store called Learners. They were looking for clothes on opposite sides of a circular rack and found that they'd both picked the same outfit, a green corduroy two-piece sport suit. They left the store dressed identically and have been dressing alike ever since. Right now I got on what I call my fatigue outfit because I did my uh, exercise. I got a pair of brown shorts and a white... What I get? This? Someone sent this to us. Oh, from Cape Cod. And honey, what are you wearing? I'm wearing the same thing Dusty with the um, brown shorts and the Cape Cod t-shirt. People say, why yet? Well, we have the same taste in clothes. So if I like the same thing she has, I, I want it, you know? So we both wear it. And wearing the same clothes to like all the time, I can't say, well, she's wearing my skirt or she's wearing my blouse because it'll be the same thing. We're happy to dress in alike. Dusty and Honey are sisters in their early 70s. 
They've lived together all their lives, mostly in Westport, Connecticut. They have the same wigs, the same eyeglasses, the same jewelry and purses. But Dusty and Honey aren't twins. Dusty is three years older than Honey. Their bedroom has two twin beds piled with matching stuffed animals. Above each bed is a crucifix. And above those, centered in the middle, staring down, is a framed picture of Frank Sinatra. Not only do Dusty and Honey eat the same food, but they make sure that one never has a larger portion than the other, and one will only have a treat if the other is there to share it with her. And if I'm out to the store, you know how sometime at a deli they'll have um, samples? If she's not there with me to have a sample, I won't take it. I have to have her with me. I'll go get a desk when there's a sample there, but I won't take it and not let her have it. That sounds strange to some people, but that's the way we are, and you can't, you just can't change us. But it works out fine, and as long as we like, we say we're not hurting anybody. Some people go, oh, it's a, we're not hurting anyone, I'm not breaking a commandment. And that's the main thing, you know. There's a kind of closeness between little girls who are best friends, where it makes you feel secure and safe to think that there's someone who shares all the same likes and dislikes. All you want is to do everything together. Dusty and Honey have somehow managed to carry that kind of friendship into adulthood. They're like the girls who write, best friends forever on the bathroom wall. Except for them, the forever part is real. It can feel sort of strange visiting them in their house, two matching women sitting on matching easy chairs in their living room, completing each other's sentences. Even in their jobs, they've been together. First a sweatshop, then an elderly home. For 30 years, they worked as housekeepers for a local priest. Is it ever hard to feel like you're a separate person? A separate person? Yeah, I mean, you you do everything together, mm-hmm. right? And and you dress the same. And do you ever feel like um, you want to feel like just an I'm individual? Yeah. If I do that, I think I'm hurting her. I'd say, like, I don't love her anymore. I don't want to do anything, like, yeah. with her. I couldn't do that. They said, why don't you dress differently than your sister? Th-? No, then I'll hurt her. I feel like I don't love her anymore, and I, I couldn't do that to her. It would like be, be, be betraying her. They know their relationship is unusual, but when I ask them why it turned out this way, they just say over and over that this is what was meant to be, and this is what makes them happy. They learn to depend on each other as little girls, Growing up during the Depression, the youngest of six children, often going to bed hungry and cold. Their father died when Honey was two and Dusty was five. Dusty was always sort of fragile. For a long time, whenever Dusty and Honey went out, Honey found herself doing everything for Dusty because Dusty was too shy to do things herself. Dusty and Honey lived at home through their early 30s, and cared for their ailing mother. They watched their older siblings get married, one by one. And every time they got married, we had, we called them, a, them was the living room, and they had a, 
a door that went right out to the hallway. And they used to go out that way with their gowns. So after they got married, my mother sealed that door up. I said, Ma, is that you're trying to tell us something? We'll never get married and go out that door. Because she sealed that door up after the last Louise got married. Do you think your mother wanted you to get married? No, no. I can't say like some mothers, when you're going to get married. She never pressured us into that. Never, never. No. I guess you knew we were meant to be to stay with one another, you know? It's just something, I guess, it's in the books. You know, nothing you can do about that. Do you think in some ways that this relationship is uh, less complicated than married couples? Yeah, I, I think so. I think so, because we understand one another. And one doesn't try to hurt the other one or lie or cheat. That's a pretty bleak view of marriage. It turns out that much of Dusty and Honey's information about marriage comes from soap operas. For as long as they can remember, they've been either listening to soaps on the radio or watching them on television. People say they're still, but we enjoy them. I kind of oh God, thank God I don't live half of the lives they live, you know. It's interesting because um, your lives seem to be very controlled and yeah, common on, yeah. on the soap <laughs> operas. They're very yeah, turbulent. So you watch all that thing, you're so quiet. You t- Well, that's how we get our kicks out of life, you know, watching this. We wouldn't know the facts of life if we didn't see TV, you know, because <laughs> my mother didn't tell us anything, you know. You bought a baby. You didn't have a baby. You bought a baby, you know. They describe themselves as young at heart, and I think that's a fair description. Their nieces have helped them keep up with teeny bopper culture, Britney Spears and NSYNC, and all the others. We like the way Ricky Martin moves, oh, he could do nice, you know. I wouldn't mind going out with him, we always say, you know, I was only 20 years younger, you know. Dusty puts her hands up mambo style and does a little shake for me, a la Ricky Martin. Every night, Dusty and Honey lay in their twin beds and talk before they fall asleep about what they're going to do the next day and what they'll wear and whether it'll be too cold for their Bermudas, like best friends on a sleepover that never ends. Hilary Frank is the author of the novels Better Than Running at Night and I Can't Tell You. The artist formerly known as Dr. Sarkin. Sometime in 1999, I'm not exactly sure when, I got in the mail a drawing of a head with six eyeballs, bared teeth, and in a word balloon above it, seven pairs of words, each of them anagrams of the letters of my own name, Ale Grass, 
liars sag, sail rags, alas rigs. Over time, I received a stack of artwork, half a foot high, including a guitar-shaped wooden cutting board that somebody simply drew on, fixed some stamps to, and threw in the mail. Plus a full canvas painting, plus dozens of pages of stream-of-consciousness poetry, all the work of one John Sarkin, who seems sort of crazy, but not so crazy that he didn't provide perfectly organized press clippings about himself and his phone number and his web address. We talked a few times on the phone. I thought of John Sarkin when the idea for this week's show came up because his family had gone through a change, a dramatic change, but they'd stayed together. And now, they all yearn for another change. Back in 1988, John was, as he puts it, this is his phrase, your classic suburban college-educated professional upper-middle-class Jew, a chiropractor with workaholic tendencies. Then on the golf course one day, something went wrong in his brain, which led to a stroke and surgery where they removed part of his cerebellum which unhinged something in his life. He wasn't able to do a normal job, and he started doing art, an obsessive, primitive sort of art that he did in an obsessive, primitive sort of way. John Sarkin sees double. The left side of his body's weak. He walks with a cane. He's deaf in the left ear. But he's also lost a certain kind of everyday reasoning and thinking in a way that, as you might imagine, affects his family life. For instance, how he gets along with his son, Curtis, age 12. The thing that just happened yesterday... We're going to the beach, okay, and we, everything, all the beach toys are in this big basket, you know. So I take the basket out, and Curtis says, put the basket back in the garage. We'll wait for mom. I'm like, okay. So I take the basket, and I dump all the beach toys out, and I put the basket back in the garage, just like he asked me to. And he's like, Dad, what are you doing? He said... You asked me to put the basket back in the garage, Curtis. Dad, with the beach toys? I'm so literal. I mean, being highly literal gets you into trouble. The world John's created for himself, a studio where he does his artwork in the seaside town of Gloucester, Massachusetts, is just a dirty little room with dingy junk everywhere. The world his wife has created for their family is a pretty suburban-style house that's so immaculate it's like a critique of where he works. At 12, Curtis is the oldest child, Robin's almost nine, and Carolyn just turned six. After family dinner one night, John's wife Kim and I sat on the front steps under the trees for an interview. Curtis comes out, and they tell me how there are so many funny family stories about their dad. We can go way back. I mean, how far back do you want to go? <laughs> can I tell the French fry story? Yeah. All right, back. Um, There's a story of how John insisted that they bring their leftover French fries home from Disney World in Florida so they could recycle them in the compost pile. Well, the story about John trying to help unpack the kitchen when they moved to the house, but doing it in a completely random way, the way a toddler might. Or the story about John not noticing that Carolyn got locked outside for a few cold minutes one winter. Each story takes such a disturbing turn that at one point Kim says, let's say some positive things about Dad. Take this story. Tell about, what was I going to say? When he first came home from the hospital, wasn't he like laughing like crazy over Mickey Mouse cartoons? I had a moment where Curtis was sitting on the couch watching cartoons and he was about two and Mickey Mouse and John was sitting on the floor and he was roaring with laughter over these Mickey Mouse cartoons. I mean, roaring. And I thought to myself, 
Oh, God. <laughs> what have I brought home? <laughs> what have I brought home? <laughs> because he was like a little kid. And living with John at that time um, was like living with a teenager. Um, the way teenagers are explosive and um, irrational and moody. Um, he was all those things. And I was the mom. Uh, so that was a tough time. But he did continue to get better. Do you feel like in some ways, though, he still is like a teenager? And you're still like... Yeah. Yeah. Curtis says he was seven or eight when he understood the extent to which his dad wasn't like the other dads. And when he'd complain about his father, Robin, the middle child, would defend dad. And Robin would get mad at me or Curtis for seeming to be so impatient with dad. And Curtis and I would sort of look at each other and roll our eyes and think, well, you'll, you'll know soon enough why we're so impatient and now Robin is to the age where she's feeling impatient with John and Caroline is very defensive and runs to his defense and um, and I know that within a couple of years she'll be more aware of it. At this point, Kim says, the six-year-old is just realizing that Dad isn't Wonder Dad. She gets mad when he scribbles a phone number on her drawings or when he invited a TV crew to come and film in their house on her birthday. He just is not aware of other people's feelings in any normal sort of way. When he does play with the kids, or draw with them, or just goof around with them, it's easy for him to go too far, get too loud. Like sometimes he comes out, comes out when kids are in the middle of a game and he starts making up rules for them to follow when they're in the middle of their game. Like here, he says, here's the rule. You have to go down the skateboard sitting down, and you can't, you have, you can't get up until you're to the bottom of the hill. And he just makes up rules, and he, he it doesn't even occur to him that the kids don't want him to be doing the rules. He just thinks he's, like, having fun and stuff. And then he asks for, like, a turn on the skateboard and just... It doesn't occur to him that it's kids being with kids and that they don't really want an adult around. He is a kid. <laughs> he is one of the kids. <laughs> Does he embarrass you? Yeah. <laughs> in lots of different ways. What makes it also tricky is that John Sarkin has better days and worse days. It is possible for him to focus and act more normal and be a bit more clear-headed. But he says this gets exhausting after half an hour. And sometimes, even when he tries to do the right thing, he guesses wrong. I should point out here that when John had his stroke, Kim and he had only been married for two years. Curtis was just a baby. Robin and Carolyn hadn't been born. And Kim decided not only to remain with him, but to have more children. She did it, she says, because at first the doctors predicted a full recovery. And then, every year, he did get better, for a long time. And she loves kids, wanted more kids. And so I I, I sort of thought to myself, well, if John gets better, it'll be nice for us to have another baby, because it's sort of a a new hope. And um, I didn't want the kids spaced too far apart. And I thought, and if he doesn't get better... It would be easier on Curtis to have a sibling to share that with, I would think. Um, so I thought, I'm just gonna, we're just going to go for it. And we decided to um, have Robin, and his family was really happy about that because it sort of um, showed that I was committed and that we were committed and that we were still a family. When you promise to stay together in sickness and in health, you do wonder... What if something happens? An accident, something disabling. But you don't think, 
What if your partner just suddenly changes into someone else? Someone very irritating. Kim says that she can still confide in John, lean on him in certain ways. But there are plenty of ways which she can't, which he understands. Were the two of you very close before all this happened? I would have to say closer than most couples. And, and now? Um, less close. And do, do you think your kids yearn for you to change? Or do they understand that, it, that you're not going to change? Both. I still do. I still yearn for it to change, even though I know it's not going to. Curtis, is there a part of you where, where you feel like, um, well, he should know better? Yeah. I feel that a lot. But I know that he really can't help it, and I just try very hard to remember that. And I do feel sometimes that he should know better, he should think first, but I know he really can't help it. It's very frustrating. Do you think he might change sometime? No, I don't. He's been acting this way for a long time, and I don't think he'll, cha- he'll change. It just seems, I have to say, it just seems, it doesn't seem he's getting any better. It don't, almost seems like he's getting worse. Yeah. Like at Carolyn's birthday, he just sat around and did nothing, and then he went and like took a nap, and he just sat around, did nothing didn't even join the party and then after we'd already done presents and practically anything he says to me Curtis what are we doing first cake or presents and we had already done presents and we were just about to start cake so it's hard after the party when everybody was cleaning up John took the special bouquet of helium birthday balloons and was about to pop them he thought he was helping And what happens in the Sarkin family is what happens in any family. It is hard for the rest of them not to think, despite themselves. Well, doesn't he love us? Doesn't he love us enough to act differently? And that's where we get upset with him, is he should know um, that the helium balloons are important to me. He should know that that drawing I made is too important to draw on. He should know that stuff. He says, no, I don't. And I said, well, I think that sometimes you use the stroke a little bit. Um, and it is hard to distinguish when he's using it and when it's really um, a perceptual problem. My, my wife is like, well, John, I think you're lazy because you use the stroke as an excuse. And I can't tell if you're really just being lazy. And sometimes she's right. Sometimes I am lazy. Sometimes I actually can't do it. Like, just like I can't remember where the light switch is, even though I've turned the lights on a thousand times. And I tell her I really can't, and she says, yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes, you can. No, I can't. And I'm like, well, guess what? I'm not going to do it because I know I can't. So end, end of conversation. I want him to care more. I I would think that no matter how bad your situation is, you've got these three marvelous children and a nice wife, 
and a nice home and you know everything you know things aren't that bad for us and I know that life is really hard for John but I would I would like it if he if he if we were more of an inspiration for him to him um, that part I, I can't let go of hoping will change And so this is where they stand. During my brief visit with the Sarkins, John was, everybody says, on his best behavior. If anything, he tiptoed around, worried that he messed things up, as everybody set the table and cleaned the kitchen. When Curtis's little sisters needed help fixing the TV, it was Curtis they came to, not their dad. Interestingly, Kim says that some of the nicest times for her are when they visit with his family, his mom, his brother, his sister. Family roles are so powerful. Something kicks in with John. I love just sitting around and listening to him talking to his brother and his sister um, because the old John seems to come back. But he's, he's also exhausted after those trips because... Um, and it's not like he's, he's deceiving them or anything. He, you know, he longs to be the old John too. But he can only be for so long. When we called the Sarkins this week, we found out that the family is still together. He's still married. The girls are teenagers. Curtis is a freshman in college. And John continues to create art. If I could only win your love, I'd make the most of everything. I'd proudly wear your wedding ring. My heart would never stray one dream away. Our program was produced today by Julie Snyder and myself with Alex Bloomberg, Susan Burton, and Blue Chevney, contributing editors for the show, Paul Tuff, Jack Hitt, Margie Rockland, Elise Spiegel, Nancy Updike, and Consulieri Saraval. Production help comes from Seth Land and Emily Youssef. Special thanks today to David Rakoff, Liz Gilbert, and Joe Lovell for names of possible children's books. Also thanks to Katie Chevney and to all the members of the farm in Juneau, Alaska. Our website, where you can get our free weekly podcast, where you can listen to any of our shows for absolutely free, www.thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Support for This American Life is provided by Saab, founded by 16 Swedish aircraft engineers who sought to bring the spirit of flight down to earth. Saab, born from jets. Learn more at saabusa.com. WBEZ Management Oversight for our program by Mr. Tori Malatia. Whenever I go up to him to talk about the budget or advertising or marketing for the radio show, he responds by saying, I don't know, I have to go look it up. The Lesbian Love Handbook of Life. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. Can I ever say how I crave your love when you're gone away? P.R.I. Public Radio International.